Hi, my name is Diana. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path to follow your word. I have not turned from your judgments, for you yourself have instructed me. How sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 7, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, we also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Kim. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 9, 23 through 24. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. The gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we thank you for who you are, and God, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit and by your word, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would breathe in a fresh way into our hearts, awaken us, convict us, challenge us, change us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, to your glory, Father. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Great to be with you today. My name is Glenn Packiam. I'm the pastor here at New Life Downtown. It has been kind of an unusual six-week stretch where I've missed every other Sunday. And so, uh, in, in fact, it was going back to mid-August uh, several weeks ago. I went up to New Life North. Uh, New Life Downtown, as you know, is part of New Life Church. We're one of the congregations of New Life Church. And so uh, five or six weeks ago, I went up to celebrate as Pastor Brady, the senior pastor at New Life Church, marked 10 years of being the senior pastor at New Life. It was a great day. Then I came back down here the next week. Then the week after that, I was in England uh, as part of my residency for my doctorate stuff. Then I came back and was with you. And then last week, I was preaching uh, at New Life North. I, I don't consider it uh, as a guest preaching kind of thing because we're all in the same church family, but I will say that my favorite place to be is with all of you at New Life Downtown. So I've missed you. 
It's, I'm glad to be back. And some of you, you know, the way that you attend church so sporadically over the last six weeks, either you don't know what I'm talking about because you've been here every time, I, or you don't know who I am, you know, so that's why I thought I'd just restart with an introduction. Uh, we're in the midst of a series through the book of Romans today, and we're in Romans chapter 7, but before we begin out of Romans chapter 7, I thought I'd read to you out of Frog and Toad. This is a wonderful collection of stories. Any Frog and Toad fans in the house? Come on now. This is a story called Cookies. Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smell very good, said Toad. I imagine Toad has to have a lower voice. He ate one, and they taste even better, he said. Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I have made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I've ever eaten, said Frog. (laughs) Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog, with his mouth full. I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. There were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad. Let us eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower, asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something that you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying not to eat all of these cookies, asked Toad. Right, said Frog. Frog put the cookies in a box. There, he said. Now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can open the box, said Toad. (laughs) That is true, said Frog. Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said. Now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. And so Frog got on a ladder, and he put the box up on a high shelf. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. And so Frog climbed the ladder and took the box down from the shelf. He cut the string and opened the box, and Frog took the box outside, and he shouted in a loud voice, Hey, birds, here are cookies. And birds came from everywhere, and they picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad sadly. Not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. (laughs) You may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I am going home now to bake a cake. Now that is the perfect introduction to Romans 7, because Romans 7 confronts us with our struggle to do what we know we ought to do. Now in our day, when we run up against such struggles, the way of our age, the way of our generation is, instead of saying, okay, something's wrong with me, how can I be different, we say, there's something wrong with the rule. And so in our day now, we have, our approach is to deconstruct morality. It's to say, oh, right and wrong. These are all arbitrary social constructs. Maybe you've heard people say that. These are just behavioral norms set up by whatever group is in power as an instrument of oppression. 
It's just another iteration of the man's got me down, right? So right and wrong, these are arbitrary constructs made up so that people could keep us down. This is what we want to say about morality. But then the other side of this is instead what we've done is instead of saying, yes, there is some sense of morality of right or wrong, we say, no, 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 that's all arbitrary. The only morality is authenticity. In other words, be true to yourself. There are, there's no right or wrong unless you're not being true to yourself. And so now the only sense of right versus wrong is if you're not being true to you. So brother, you do you. You go girl and do, just be yourself. Don't let anybody get in your way. Don't let anybody tell you that's wrong. Those are all artificial, arbitrary, abstract social constructs. Just be true to yourself. What's the problem with that? That itself is another law. That itself is another standard. And not only is it another standard, it's another standard which we cannot meet. And so the new anxiety now in our age is not the anxiety of guilt. It's not the angst of guilt. Now the new angst is, is that really me? Is this job really me? Is this car really me? Is this church really me? And all of our angst is about, am I conforming to my arbitrary standard of being true to myself? Never mind that myself is a constantly moving target. And so we have this sense of like, I'm supposed to conform. I don't know. Am I being truly authentic if I just do this job? I don't want to do this job. It doesn't feel me. And you see, we are no less in a prison than we were before. We can't escape it. And so the question, when we open Romans 7, we are confronted, especially in the tail end of this chapter, and that's actually where I want to start. I want to start with verse 15 because it's this familiar part of the chapter, and it shows us how we have a sense of a standard and our failure to meet it. So verse 15, so what should we sin? Excuse me, wrong chapter. Chapter 7, verse 15. I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the thing that I hate. But if I'm doing the thing that I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the law is right. But now I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it's sin that lives in me. I know that good doesn't live in me. That is in my body, my flesh. The desire to do good is inside of me, but I can't do it. I don't do the good that I want to do, but I do the evil that I don't want to do. But if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, then I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it is sin that's living in me that's doing this. Now we can relate, right? We're like, oh man, Paul, yeah, bro, the struggle is real. I feel you. The trick is, how do we read Romans 7? So on the one sense, we read these verses, we think, man, I resonate with that. Surely there's a part of this that sounds like various moments in my life. But there's actually quite a lot of scholar, scholarly discussion about what Paul was talking about and what, who Paul was referring to. One of the best ways of understanding this set of verses is that Paul, to make his point stronger, kind of uses I to represent all of Israel in the Old Testament when they were under the law before Christ. 
And so Paul's using it as a way of personifying the people of Israel. And he says, now listen, Israel loved the law. We heard it in our Old Testament reading. I love your law. I think your law is great. The only trouble is I can't do it. I know what's good. Inside I desire it, but there's something else at work inside me, this power that keeps bending me away from your law. So one way to approach this text is to say, yeah, Paul's underscoring the point for his Jewish listeners to say it's not enough to have the gift of the Torah because you can't keep it. It's not enough. It won't save you. There's another sense in which some people say this is Paul setting up Romans 8 where he's about to say, look, this is what it's like when you try to live the Jesus kind of life without the Jesus kind of power. And so he's about to talk about the Holy Spirit that works within us to cry, Abba, Father, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And he's setting us up to say Christianity is not just a new set of rules. Christianity is not a souped-up version of morality that now you got to live this way. No, Christianity is a rehauling, an overhauling, a renovation of the, of the heart that gives you a new kind of power. And so he doesn't want you to, he, he wants you to realize if you approach Christianity like just another, another morality to conform to, this is going to be your experience. And yet, despite those two ways of treating the text, there is something about Romans 7, 15 through 20 that says, but I have experiences like that. Sometimes there are moments where the thing I want to do, I don't do, like with cookies frog and toad. And so here's what I want to say to us. Rather than get in the quibble about, well, which was this originally meant, who was this originally meant to, I just want us to zoom back a bit and say, look, sometimes the Holy Spirit takes the inspired word of God and lets it address our situations, even if our situations are a little bit different than the original ones when the text was written, right? And so I don't want us to get hung up about who is he actually talking. I want us to zoom back and actually deal with the question of morality. What do we do with morality? What do we actually do with the sense of right and wrong? In fact, to put the question another way, why has every human society conceived of some sense of right and wrong and also held some awareness that we've fallen short of that standard? Now leave that up there for a minute so we can think about it. That's the question that Romans 7 makes us wrestle with. Why is it that in every human society there is some sense, we might disagree about what that right is and what that wrong is, but there's some sense of a differentiation between right and wrong. And along with that, there's some sense that we've fallen short of it. C.S. Lewis in the 50s wrote this incredible book called Mere Christianity. It actually began as a series of radio lectures during World War II. On, the, on national radio, and it was turned into a book. And he starts out in his, in his series of talks and in the first part of the book by saying, look, there's a sense in us of a right and a wrong, even if we disagree about what those are. There's a sense of it. And then he says, and why is it that every civilization has invented some way to atone for guilt, for the sense that not only is there right and wrong, but we're on the wrong side of this? We're on the short side of the stick. Why is that? Now, when it comes to Christians trying to deal with this, sometimes we have cheap ways of answering this dilemma, okay? One sort of false Christian solution to the question of morality is the law says do and the gospel says done. Now, that's cute. And it's pithy and it's a great tweet. 
But the trouble is, that's not how the New Testament talks about it. If that's really what the gospel of Jesus Christ was, then Jesus, at the end of Matthew's gospel, in which he taught a lot, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples out of every nation, teaching them to obey. Oh, Jesus, you don't really mean that, right? Because you're about to go to the cross, and then it's all done, right? Nothing for us to do. Nope. Yes, there is. Oh, what about Paul's letters? Why would Paul waste so much ink and parchment if the gospel is only the word done and not also the word do, but with a new kind of power? So we, can't, we don't get to resolve this question with a cheap answer, right? Sometimes our approach to grace, it's like we imagine grace is God softening in his old age. You know, Old Testament God is like that uptight 30-something parent of small children. <laughs> don't do that. I said, don't do that. Why are you? Come on, grab your, do you have your shoes? What is going on? You know, why are you screaming? You know, every other word is like a don't and a do and a don't. You know, and then New Testament God is like grandparent God. He's like, ah, I don't know. You want some more ice cream? You know, ah, coat, no coat. Who cares? You know, let's go. It's freezing outside. Never mind. Right. And this is how we think of grace. It's just God softening in his old age. He kind of went through it with rebellious Israel, realized oh, what a bad parent he was. I'm not going to do this different this time. Just come over here, you. But that's not right because we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we don't get to resolve this question with cheap answers. We've got to find another way into this. Romans 7, verse 7, Paul takes us to the heart of the question. He says, so what are we going to say? That the law is sin? Absolutely not. But I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. I wouldn't have known the desire for what others have if the law had not said, don't desire what others have. The law, Paul wants to be clear, is not the problem. Sin is the problem. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And then he goes on in Romans 7 verse 8 and he says, but sin seized the opportunity and used this commandment to produce all kinds of desires in me. Sin is dead without the law. And here, many commentators believe that Paul is kind of giving the I a personification of Adam. He's saying, this is me taking on Adam in the garden, saying, look, I used to be alive without the law, but when the commandment came, as soon as God said, don't eat out of that tree, sin sprang to life, and I died. So the commandment that was intended to give life brought death. Now, why is Paul being so careful to say the law itself is not evil? Because he's saying the psalmists were not wrong. The psalmists were not wrong when they said, your law is perfect. All of the Jewish theology of saying that the Torah, the instructions of God are perfect, bringing light and life and all of this stuff, all of the delight that they expressed in the law. Paul's saying, you're not wrong for delighting in the law and saying that the law is perfect. The law is not just rules. We've been over this, right? What is Torah? Instructions, understanding, wisdom, Paul's saying it's all there, but it's sin that sees the law to awaken stuff in me. It reminds me of sort of Lord of the Rings, where the ring itself was not necessarily the problem, but 
The ring was the occasion for all of a sudden a kind of covetousness and possessiveness to take over so that whoever grabbed the ring was tempted in a way to sort of become a dehumanized version of themselves, or perhaps more accurately, a dehobitized version of themselves. My precious. And then he says, but sin seized the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and killed me. And he says, so the law itself is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So did something good bring death to me? No, absolutely not. But sin caused my death through something good so that sin would be exposed as sin. That way sin would become even more thoroughly sinful than uh, through the commandment. Catch this. He's saying that sin seized the opportunity through the law to try to kill me. And then not only that, but the result of it was that sin became revealed for the monster and the evil that it truly is. You know what this makes me think of? It makes me think of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Because the Triwizard Cup is not bad. The Triwizard Cup was a great tournament. And somehow Harry gets entered into the Triwizard Cup. We don't know how. Well, we do know how later at the end of the book, right? And as he's, but it's through the Triwizard Cup that Voldemort uses it as an opportunity to do what? To kill Harry. He uses it as a moment to say, I'm going to kill you. He doesn't succeed, but instead what happens by the end of the book? He's revealed as the Dark Lord. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, I think it's a pretty good analogy. <laughs> Since seized the commandment to try to kill us, in the end we saw it revealed for the darkness that it is. Here's the thing I want you to see. Sin is not just something bad that we do. Sin is a power at work in the world trying to destroy you. Sin is a power at work in the world trying to destroy you. Now, how often have we been told that? Most of the time, growing up in church, we're given kind of a fussy version of rules. Don't do this. This is not what Christians do. This is not how you behave. That's wrong. Don't do this. And then, to make it worse, we add things to the list that really have no reason to belong on the list, you know? We start making up stuff. Don't play cards. Don't, don't do this. Don't have tattoos. Don't, do, you know, don't pierce your ears. Don't do, and we invent all of these things. And so all that we inherit about Christianity is it's a bunch of arbitrary rules and people telling me that that's wrong and that's wrong and that's right and that, you know? Instead of saying, actually, the thing that you should be vigilant about is there's an enemy of your soul and he wants nothing short of destroying you. And he's going to use these things, not as cute little fuzzy-wuzzy pet sins, but as ways of destroying you. And Paul says, this whole experience with sin should wake you up. There's no such thing as an innocent flirtation with evil. It's out for your blood. It's the dark Lord himself trying to kill you. He's not here to be your friend. And I think about the moments as a young man when people would say to me, a teenager, early college, life, and say, oh, don't do this, don't look at pornography, don't do these things, because, well, it's just wrong. And then you fast forward decades later where our society has said, oh, those are victimless crimes. Nobody's really hurt by that. If, as long as it doesn't harm anybody, do what makes you feel good. And instead, we should have been telling people all along, sin is a power that wants to destroy you. 
This isn't about, well, I mean, is it kind of, I don't know if it's really, who says it's wrong? No. Is this going to lead to your demise? Is this going to ruin your capacity for intimacy? Is this going to destroy your ability to have relationships? Because sin is not to be toyed with. Don't play the fool with this stuff. And Paul says it. Look, this is the real danger of it. Sin was revealed for the monster that it is. And now the question is, well, what do we do with that? If sin really is that powerful, if it really is this thing that took control over us and trapped me in a certain way, well, what do I do? The first thing the gospel does is to confront us with our own powerlessness. The gospel confronts us with our powerlessness. There's no way of saying, well, if you just had the right techniques or just had the right tips or if you just learned this way of doing things, and then you'll be fine. You, you, you can get... Listen, what the gospel wants you to know is you cannot slay this dragon on your own. You are not young David facing Goliath heroically. It takes the son of David, Jesus the Messiah, to slay Goliath. There is a dragon that you cannot kill. There is a giant that you cannot slay. And the gospel wants you to feel the weight of this. Dallas Willard, the great Christian philosopher who's now with the Lord, he said, let's not give people the gospel of sin management. Let's not teach people that Jesus forgives your sins and so just kind of tidy up and do the best you can. And if you don't really break free, you know, just manage it. That's not the gospel. What Jesus offers us is not a gigantic coping mechanism. What Jesus offers us is the power to be free. The power to be free. In Romans 7, the first thing we have to face is, okay, I admit, without Jesus, I am completely powerless. And so in verse 1, right at the start of the chapter, he says, brothers and sisters, I'm talking to you as people who know the law. Don't you know that the law has power over someone only as long as he or she lives? And now he uses a, an analogy from the, the court, the courtrooms of marriages and law and, and, and the, the, the rules about that stuff. And he says, a married woman is united with her husband under the law while he is alive. But if her husband dies, then she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, she's committing adultery. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she won't be committing adultery if she marries someone else. Now Paul, in a classically Paul way of confusing things, changes the metaphor. Because he, he says, look, if, you, if a woman's married, the husband dies, then she's free. And then he says, actually, we're the ones who died and so are free to be married to Christ. And you're like, Paul, I just lost you there, you know. Unless you've seen the movie Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd, then you kind of know about faking your death to marry someone else. Anyway, okay. <laughs> but without Christ, we were bound to sin. With, and I mean this in every sense of the word. We, I was bound to do that. We were bound to sin. There was an obligation that no one could break us free from. You were stuck in every sense of the word. The negative stuckness. You were stuck in a bad relationship with sin. And sin made you do whatever sin wanted. And you were stuck couldn't get out of it. 
And then Paul changes the metaphor in verse 4. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also died with respect to the law through the body of Christ. Somehow you shared in Christ's body at, in his death at the cross so that you could be united with someone else. And who is that? I love this sentence. You are united with the one who was raised from the dead so that we can bear fruit for God. What a gorgeous sentence. You were united with the one who was raised from the dead so that you can bear fruit to God. And when we were self-centered, the sinful passions aroused through the law were at work in all parts of our body so that we bore fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law. We've died with respect to the thing that controlled us so that we can be slaves in the new life under the Spirit, not in the old life under the written law. Because we are united with Christ in his death, we have no more obligation to sin. Because we are united with Christ in his death, we have no more obligation to sin. And because we are united with Christ in his resurrection, singular, we are alive and can bear the fruit of obedience. Because we're united with Christ in his resurrection, we are alive and can bear the fruit of obedience. Here's the nutshell summary we were powerless, sin is powerful, but Christ is victorious. That's the nutshell of Paul's argument. Look, we were powerless, we were stuck in this relationship with sin, bound to do everything that sin told us to do, but now Christ came, we're no longer stuck in this bad relationship. Instead, we're united, joined, stuck with Christ, and because of our union with Christ, we can now bear a different kind of fruit. See, the gospel is not just about a new start. It's about a new kind of power, a new kind of life, a new kind of possibility. Now, I'm not telling you that this happens overnight. Sometimes it does. But oftentimes, the full work of the Spirit in us is a lifelong journey of a long obedience in the same direction, right? And so there's these old habits where water could only run down the hill through this one trench. And every time I felt this way, I had to do that. And every time this came up, that's what I had to do. And then Jesus. And then Jesus said, let's dig a new trench over here. And every time you feel this, we're going to go this way instead. We're going to go this way instead. We're going to go here. We're going to go here. We're going to go here. And before you know it, you're bearing the fruit of obedience. Why? Because you're united with Christ. You're no longer stuck in a bad relationship with sin. You're joined to Jesus. 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 Martin Luther wrote a letter to one of his protégés, Melanchthon, and it's several different paragraphs, and in the last paragraph of his letter, he starts talking to Melanchthon about how to confess your sins, and he says, there's no reason for the Christian to confess imaginary sins, as if God can only handle the, the light stuff, you know, let's confess our sins, well, Lord, I, I, I might have gotten a little bit upset on the highway, you know, but I, you know, I'm, you know. Don't make that stuff up, okay? 
What Luther says is, if you're going to confess your sins, confess the very depth of it. Confess the worst of it. Confess the utter ugliness of it. And this is how he says it. He says, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Now, if you just stop there, you might misunderstand what Brother Martin is saying. In fact, some translations in the German say, sin boldly. So I've seen people be like, right on, man. Have another round on me, you know. Sin boldly. Cheers to Luther, you know. What he's saying is, you don't have to shy away from confessing the worst about you. Go ahead. Confess sin to the full strength that it is in you. Go ahead. Let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin and death and the world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's saying, come on, what do you got? What do you got? Say it. Bring it out. Don't hide it. Don't keep things in the darkness. Don't say, I can't talk to Jesus about that. I can't bring that up at church. I can't share with my friends. I, I, bring it all out to the light. Why? Because there's no sin that's stronger than Jesus. There's no darkness that's stronger than the light of Christ. There is no brokenness stronger than the love of Christ. So let your sin be strong before God in confession, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. Because Jesus is the victor. As the worship team prepares to come this morning, I want us to think about this. Think about our own lives and what it means to no longer be united with sin, but to now be joined to Jesus. Because sometimes I think we still see ourselves as being united with sin. And so we imagine in church that when God looks at you, he sees you and then he sees that sin that you're joined to, right? And so you come to worship or you open your Bible to pray and you think that God looks at you and says, well, hello there, Tim. It's nice to see you, Tim, but oh, there's Tim's sin right there. So hello, Tim and his sin. Ooh, boy. Instead, if the gospel is really true, God doesn't see you as united with sin. He sees you as united with Jesus. And so when the Father looks at you, he says, well, hello, Sarah, and hello, Jesus. You're together, aren't you? The great theologian Robert Jensen went to be with the Lord last week. Several people were paying tribute to his work. There's a book he wrote out of conversations with his eight-year-old granddaughter. And she, it's called Conversations with Poppy. And she said, Poppy, how does God choose whom, who he lets into heaven? He's thinking about how to say this. And he, he said, well, one way of saying what happened with Jesus is that Jesus so attached himself to you that if God the Father wants his son, Jesus, back, he's stuck with you too. I know the word stuck, the phrase stuck with you can have the connotation that he didn't really want you. And so Jensen adds this last sentence, which is how he picks you. Friends, I've got good news for you today. God the Father picked you. 
God the Father chose you. He didn't look down and say, oh, he picked you. And Jesus the Son so attached himself to you that the Father can't look at you and not see Jesus too. And so every time you pray, the Father says, hey, it's my beloved Son. And you're like, Jesus or, or me? He's like, yes. Hey, Eric and Jesus, you guys are stuck together. Jesus has so attached himself to us. The reason the gospel changes everything is not because we were given a new set of instructions. The reason the gospel changed everything is because God the Son came down and shared in your death so that you can share in his life. And you're united with Christ no longer united with sin. So we're going to confess our sins this morning and there's no need to be shy about it. We're going to pray a prayer of confession but you can call to your mind the worst of it. You can call to your mind the black, darkest, broken, worst. Call to mind. Say, yeah, God, that's there. Isn't it amazing that for all of our technology in the world, all of our apps and all the stuff we've got, there's no way to deal with guilt except for Christ, the victor over sin and death. So go ahead. Let your confession of sin be strong. But let your trust in Christ be stronger still. Would you bow your heads this morning and pray?